Welcome to a throwback edition of the Social Flight Live podcast, where we feature a special past episode that stood out from all the rest. Join our live broadcast every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have a great show for you tonight. Kirby Chambliss is here. It is going to be such a great show. Uh, let's uh, turn on here to the presentation. I just want to show you a couple things with updates about what's happening now here. And, um, you know, we started Social Flight Live specifically to support general aviation during the crisis and uh, it's really been great we've had such wonderful guests and we're doing everything that we can to encourage people to get out there and fly and especially to support their local fbo's businesses stay proficient etc and so the first thing we have done now that flying is coming back is to uh, start this campaign that we call aviation social distancing one propeller apart and so we're encouraging people to uh, take this logo feel free to email us and we'll get your own logo on it you can distribute it with your flying club or use it however it uh, best suits you just to encourage people to get out there and fly but fly using safe social distancing practices and I shouldn't have to say it, but of course, never stand so close to a propeller. That is not the point. It's an image about staying six feet apart. And so, again, um, we're really excited because what's starting to happen around the country after this very difficult time is, of course, aviation is starting to open up. Flight schools are opening. All sorts of facilities are, are now opening. And then we're starting to see more air traffic and more wonderful things happening within general aviation. And I'll just have to say kind of a, a proud dad moment here. My eldest son, uh, Jake, is getting ready for his check ride. That was all put on hold at the beginning of the crisis. And so he'll be taking his check ride for his private on the 30th. We're all hoping for him and rooting for him with that. And that's all part of flight schools opening up. So um, this past weekend, uh, the first thing that we did is we went and uh, took a, a flight down to Katama Air Park, which is one Bravo two down in Martha's Vineyard, uh, where it's part of Edgartown. And uh, of course, Heidi and I, we put uh, bikes into the plane and get out and bike around and look at that. It was so gorgeous and it just reminds all of us um, how wonderful aviation is and how it can kind of open up the world for us as private pilots in a way that um, just isn't available to everybody else and yet general aviation itself is available and so the more that we can encourage people to learn how to fly or just take their first flight um, the better and um, when we landed here it's really a classic airfield it goes back to world war ii and uh, it's, it is three grass runways in kind of the old school military layout of a triangle, uh, which is really cool. And, and, you know, even though you're dealing with a grass runway, you have uh, uh, such an incredibly long distance. It's very well manicured, a really easy place to fly into and very classic. They even give rise in, in this big, gorgeous biplane that they had there, uh, which is just constantly going up and around and spreading the word about general aviation. While we were there, 
we met this wonderful gentleman, uh, Paul Santropietro, Captain Paul, uh, who had this great, fantastic uh, explorer that he flies and and uh, is constantly giving people tailwheel training. And I love this uh, bumper sticker that he has on the plane. Help stamp out nose wheels, Captain Paul's Flight School and Tailwheel Academy. And uh, I'll tell you, we, um, we talked with him at length. Um, and uh, he is actually, let me go back to him here. He actually has 22,000 hours of flight time, mainly in training and small aircraft and banner telling, just about everything you can imagine, and splits his time between Florida and up in Martha's Vineyard. And so this was just a great opportunity to see more grassroots general aviation happening and spend some time with him. And uh, as you know, we all swap t-shirts and, and, and all these wonderful things. So uh, a shout out there to Paul. And that was really wonderful. After that, we biked into town and uh, you can see the beauty of uh, going down to Edgartown on Martha's Vineyard. And again, things starting to safely open up outdoor restaurants here in Massachusetts opening up. It is, it's amazing how wonderful something like that actually feels after not having it for months. Um, so it was a really, really great opportunity. And I would just like to, again, encourage all of you to uh, tell us your stories, send us your stories and your pictures uh, for Takeoffs for Takeout. We are here to support all of those FBOs, local airport restaurants, businesses, et cetera, everything around general aviation to keep it strong as we transition, hopefully, out of this crisis and back to a normal world where we are as stronger than we, we ever were before. Uh, and to that end, be sure to check out socialflight.com and the free Social Flight mobile apps. There's where you find tens of thousands of aviation events and destinations. You can press one button on the map and get all of the $100 hamburger locations out there you can fly to. All of your adventures are there in one place. We just encourage you, of course, to continue doing it safely uh, as we exit this crisis. So with that, I would like to switch to our uh, top lead guest. I am so excited to have Kirby Chambliss here on the show tonight. You know, at only 13 years old, Kirby began flying and by age 24, he was the youngest commercial pilot at Southwest Airlines. He made captain by age 28. And although he enjoyed flying commercial, it became a means to pay for his true love, which was aerobatics. Kirby continuously trained to perfect his aerobatic skills and routines and became a staple at air shows from around the country. And that's where he began to establish his fan base and earn the recognition for his skills, eventually getting acceptance onto the United States national aerobatic team. And to date, Kirby Chambliss has accumulated 13 medals in world competition. By the early 2000s, he was recognized as one of the top 15 aerobatic pilots in the world and was asked to compete in the very first Red Bull Air Race. He transferred his explosive, aggressive flying style to the racetrack, is now a two-time Red Bull Air Race world champion and uh, resides down at Flying uh, Crown Ranch between Tucson and Phoenix with his wife and fellow pilot Kelly and their daughter Carly. With a hangar and runway in the backyard, Kirby's only steps away from hopping into one of his planes, which is a dream I know for so many of us. And so just before I bring him on, I would like to share with you one of my absolute favorite videos. So uh, stay tuned for one second. You may have to adjust your volume for a very short video that gives you a great intro into what Kirby Chambliss is all about.
Silver Dallas. This is Texas State Police. Identify yourself. Sorry, gotta go. This guy's crazy. Great to be back in Texas. You're still fast. I think she'll go faster. All right. Boy, you can't do better than that for an introduction uh, when it comes to uh, excitement around uh, having a, uh, someone and a performer. And so uh, here we go. Welcome, Kirby. How are you doing tonight? Hey, Jeff. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on your show. You are very, very welcome. And I first want to say I appreciate everything that you do. You're really big in supporting general aviation. And so I know that uh, not only being able to join us here tonight, but uh, there's so much that you do to help support general aviation and keep us going during this time that my hat's off to you for doing that. Thank you. Yeah, we've been, you know, staying kind of busy doing some angel flights and stuff. It's, uh, you know, we're able to help some people out and then also got to exercise the airplane anyway. So you might as well make it to work. You know, it's kind of a win-win. Exactly. Hey, I look, we can't get past that video without you telling me the story that goes behind it. There's got to be something that goes behind there. It was. The backstory of that, we had a blast doing it. It was, you know, really a lot of fun. But uh, later on, you know, I mean, like a month later, I heard that there was 831 911 calls down there. And I was like, oh, my gosh, you know. So I don't think that they were very good at getting the word out, you know. So it was anything from spraying anthrax to, you know, the airplanes crashed and many, many times because it kept going up and doing it, it seems like forever. But right down there, you know, down at the fairgrounds at the Ferris wheel, we did that shot many times. And you think after a while that people would say, well, maybe he didn't crash. He keeps going up and then back down. And then, uh, you know, we just had a blast doing it, though, but it was super fun. So all of that, you worked that out in advance with the FAA, I assume? Yes, of course. Yeah, it was all wavered and all, all done legitimately for sure, you know. Um, you always have to be that way because everybody's like, uh, oh, it was a Red Bull plane. I'm like, oh, who flies that? Oh, it's Kirby. You know, everybody knows. So 100%, <laughs> yeah, 100% legitimate. We are always that way. And, um, yeah, but it was it was a lot of fun. So tell me, did you, did you, how do you lay out the course? Or you, I mean, you flew under a, a pretty low overpass as part of that, didn't you? Yeah, you know, we just decided that was kind of last minute. Like, so the FAA was there and they're like, yeah, sure, go ahead. It really is not that difficult. <laughs> I mean, it was funny, I tell you, we were doing a Red Bull air race down in Budapest, and, uh, you know, early on, we'd go under the, the chain bridge, which is super famous, and, 
you know, the, the water level changes, you know, that's, uh, you get rain and the river goes up and so your clearance also changes. And um, it was funny because we've done it for years and years and years. And I think I counted out, I've been under that bridge about 400 times because you'd start under, finish under it. And then every time you're going to practice, you're going under it. And about halfway through that, they made a sign of waiver. You know, I'm like, I've been under the thing a couple hundred times now. Now you want me to sign a waiver, so go ahead. But it was, you know, much easier. That bridge that I flew under in the uh, in that advertisement was actually much easier than the chain bridge. That sometimes we only had about the 19 feet, and the airplane will take up 11 feet, believe it or not. You know, from the bottom of the propeller or the landing gear, with it, especially going fast because the tail's kind of up in the air. So you had less than eight feet of clearance, less than four feet on top and bottom when you're going. Yeah, by yeah, yeah. And you had to remind yourself, you know, because you're you're trying to set up, you know, for the optimum line on that uh, going through the gates, and you're like, oh yeah, think about the bridge too, because it was just kind of a afterthought when you're racing. You're like, oh yeah, there was a bridge, and here we're onto the track. Wow, I mean, and and also I, I I will say it's kind of hard the idea for at least from from some of the folks that I've known at the FAA that you just casually turn to them during this and say, hey, how about we also go under the bridge? They're like, yeah, sure. Believe it or not, we've actually you know been able. I mean, we've always had a great working relationship with them, and I mean, I've gotten to do what a lot of people say is a lot of crazy stuff, you know. But it's all really well thought out. We don't just do anything crazy, but it's all well thought out. I mean, I've landed on the Las Vegas Strip, you know, and taken off from there. And, uh, you know, uh, flown through under cement docks, bridges, all kinds of cool stuff that they allow us to do. So, and again, you know, we don't just go out and do it. I mean, site survey, everything's done, you know, looked at it and weighs out, and, you know, to ways to make it as safe as you can possibly do. Right. Is there one in particular when it comes to like squeezing the airplane somewhere that it's not normally supposed to go that sticks out in your mind? Well, let's see, when we were in uh, Zhangjiajie, China, we were all flying through that whole Heaven's Gate, and that didn't have anything to do with the FAA, or obviously they don't have jurisdiction in China. But, you know, um, I didn't think that much of it, and I've been through there a few times, and uh, a coach that I have forever, Sergey Boryak, you know, he, after I'd already been through it several times, he came over and was talking that he wasn't going to do that. He's like, it's crazy, it's crazy. And I was like, oh, my God, I mean, if he's thinking it's crazy, Maybe I should have put a little bit more thought into the whole thing, you know, but it, 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 was, it was fun, you know, but you're going through, you know, they say in some places it's only 90 feet wide and you're going through there and what you learn initially, we all use our peripheral vision a lot. And what you just learn to do is just kind of focus on where you want to be, which is out. So, you know, go to the middle and I want to be out of this thing. So, but, you know, when you're going into it, there's, you know, once you decide to go through there, there's no getting out of it, going out the backside of it. But, that was probably the craziest, you know, early on, you know, but it was, it was fun and, and, uh, and I sure enjoyed it. Is there video up the, out there of, of, of you? Oh, doing yeah, that? sure, yeah. All right, we'll have to go check that out and direct okay. people over to that if they want to see yeah. that. And again, what is that called so people know can go look for that? Evans Gate. And I mean, uh, we've had some wingsuiters actually go through there now and do all kinds of cool stuff. So uh, it's very famous. And it's, uh, I'm, I know I'm going to, you know, mispronounce it, but it's called Jinjaji China. So wow. and excuse my accent there for that. <laughs> so so take us back in time a little bit. Um, you were part of the first Red Bull air races when those things got started. How how did that happen? And uh, and then what was your experience as they were figuring all of this out? Well, I got a, a phone call uh, from Peter Bessier, which I'd done a lot of uh, World Grand Prix with him in China. He was a friend of mine, and he said, "Hey, we're you know going to do this thing," and he explained it all, and I was like. Wow, that sounds really cool. 
but you're talking about doing it. I forget what I just remember it was on the you know, it's gonna start um a week, it was on weekend, and then I remember two days later, you know, I was performing at Oshkosh. And so anyway, um I said, Oh, you know, Peter, it sounds great, but I don't want to be all jet lagged and everything. So I appreciate it. Um, but uh, no thanks. And then I got a call from Red Bull and I wasn't sponsored by them or anything. I just got a call from them and said, Hey, we really want you to come over and do this thing. And I was like, Hey guys, thanks a lot. You know, I appreciate it, but you know, it's two days later. I'm going to find Oshkosh. I don't want to go through all that. And anyway, what I didn't know at the time is that they basically said you were one through 15 in the world aerobatic standings or you weren't invited. Well, at the time I was the only American in there. And so what I didn't know is that they wanted to build it as an international event. And if I didn't go, it was going to be a European event. If I went, it's an international event. Had I known that, I probably would have let them call back a few more times because, you know, every time they called me, they offered me more money. And pretty soon I was like, <laughs> okay, I'll go. I guess I'll be jet lagged at Oshkosh, you know? So, I mean, who am I trying to kid? You know? Okay, I'm headed over. Wow. So basically, you owe Oshkosh uh, how much money for, uh, for getting <laughs> I still made it back and performed at Oshkosh for sure. But, you know, when I realized it had so many of the things that I loved, I mean, I raced motocross as a kid. I always loved speed. I loved flying. I love aerobatics. And it kind of had all those things into one. And so I got over there and I was just like, wow. I mean, this was, it was just a really good fit for me. And I enjoyed it so much. And, you know, then I helped them bring it to the U.S. We did a few in Europe. You know, the first one that I helped them bring it to the U.S. And, you know, that's how my whole thing started with Red Bull. And, uh, you know, that was, a, I hate to date myself, like 16 years ago or something. So, um, but, you know, it's it's a really cool event. And it's a great event for aviation. and gets, you know, young people excited about aviation and, uh, you know, helps promote that. So I'm all yeah. about that. And I've always thought, I mean, the proximity to cities, the proximity to so many people being able to see it, 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 it it's a one opportunity that you just don't have in so many other chances where sure people will be at some events and have a flyover or at a game and have a military flyover. But to see this stuff up close from these cities uh, and not have to actually go to specifically an air show, which, which already knocks out a whole bunch of people that may not originally find that attractive, just exposes it to a huge number of people. I mean, I really think it's fantastic. Now, in the very beginning, how much had they had, You like, what was kind of figured out already versus what did they learn over time along the way? I mean, did they, at that time that they, they were calling you, were they like locked and done? Like, oh, we already know what a course layout is. We already know how these pylons are going to work. What, what was the story? No, they were just putting it together. And I mean, back then, I think, you know, one of the reasons that they wanted you to be so experienced is that quite frankly, a lot of it stuff was crazy. I mean, I remember we had the what we call the crash and go where you would pull up, you know, and do two or four or something like, so you stop 90 degrees, 90 degrees. And you remember, you're going to climb at least 1500 feet. And then only about maybe 700 feet from there, you had to hit the landing gear on this pole. Otherwise you lost two seconds or five seconds, whatever it was. And so, you know, you've got the airplane coming down at a huge rate of descent. Imagine, you know, you're going to do that. So you throw it on its side, you're slipping it like crazy. And, you know, so there was a lot of things that really weren't thought out back then, you know, and they were just, you know, I mean, I tell people too, I, um, I did the test flying on the edge from the first one in 93 all the way up to 2005. And so I was pretty familiar with what that airplane was capable of. At least that's what I thought. And if you were to tell me that the airplanes were capable of making it turns and corners and stuff like we are now, I would have told you you're crazy. 
because, uh, you know, they basically turn inside of each other. But the whole thing evolved, and, uh, you know, it's gotten to work. Of course, it's much safer, too, you know, by all that. The gates have been raised. Uh, you know, they got rid of the quattro, and, which is something that I really enjoy doing. But, you know, quite frankly, I mean, it exposes you, you know, your what we call spades or shovels on the bottom of the airplane. You're exposed to those, you know, with those four gates as you're coming through under high G. And so, you know, things like that, they try to make it, you know, more entertaining, but also safer, too, for the pilots. Towards the end, did they still have that thing where you've got to touch your landing gear down? <laughs> well, they got rid of that, you know. <laughs> so uh, there was only a dream. It was always during practice. I mean, there was definitely one prop that went away because of that. You know, not a mine, but, you know, yeah. So uh, it was uh, it was always interesting, and it was for sure fun to watch because you never quite knew exactly what was going to happen. You didn't know you are going to have a spot landing competition right in the middle of an air race? Yeah, you know, and that's the thing. You're doing it, you know, imagine that from 1,500 feet down, 700 feet down the way, and you've got to literally put your gear on that. And then, oh, that's not bad enough. You know, let's uh, turn it, you know, 180 degrees, you know, at stalling speed now because you've just come off the runway the fastest guy to do that. And uh, We used to do a thing where you'd loop back through it. That went away, too. So you'd go through the gate, and when you felt like, okay, I can make it from here, max G, everything, then I'm going to turn this thing around and I'm going to come right back through here. So you want to go as soon as you can because every fraction of a second that you're going that way is going to take even longer to come back. And so you would just go, okay, bam, you know, I can make it now. And it was like, okay, that's not dangerous enough because you had this huge, you know, vector going towards the ground. You had to stop the vector and then get through the gate. But there we go. Instead of making it a horizontal gate back then, we had the knife edge gate. So after you've made this, let's just take all the lift out of the wing and turn it sideways. <laughs> like, oh, my God. But, you know, we did it, and, you know, it all worked out. But it was for sure exciting. You know, some of them I've watched, some other people, some of them go, Whoop. okay, we got through that. So, uh, yeah, but it, it evolved, and, you know, it's, uh, it's faster. The times are closer, and, you know, and also – a lot of the guys, you know, were basically doing it, you know, we started doing it when I so everybody got pretty good at it. Wow. And now, like, would your whole team, total or something like that. So, would, would your whole team travel with you for, for all of this? Yes. Yeah. And the teams got bigger. You know, we added tacticians, you know, to help you with optimize the line. We had simulators and, you know, it's just like anything. I mean, I think you start out with a rule book that's kind of like this and then pretty soon it's like this, you know, so right. it's just like formula one or NASCAR or anything else. You, know, you keep yeah. adding rules and you know, some of that's good. Some of it's bad. So start with the basics. The, the, the plane, would it get shipped over? Yeah. So everybody always asks, how do you get the airplane there? Well, my air show plane looks just like my race plane. So they were always like, this plane's going to be, you know, two days from now, it's going to be, you know, wherever in Budapest and it's a different plane. And it was also modified different. It's still a, an edge, but they call it a version three. But we've got these big suitcases, and the wing would come off. The guys that put the wing in a big suitcase, that's what it looks like, but they call the wing box, and then a, a tail box, the tail would come off. Then they would bubble wrap the fuselages. They'd put them both on, two of them on what I call a cooking sheet. You know, it's a big chunk of aluminum. They would get strapped down. Then they would strap all the wing boxes down, tail boxes down. They would go in a front end 747, you know, and then zoom, they're gone. So. Oh, so air air transport. You didn't even stick it into a shipping container or anything. Well, sometimes if we had enough time between the race, because I think it's about probably one-fifth of what, you know, air freight is to send them sea freight. So if you had time, you know, they tried to do it that way. But, yeah, a lot of times I mean, we had 747s running this stuff around. So, 
you know, it's a, a pretty expensive deal, you know, for sure. I, I always like the idea of an airplane coming out of an airplane there. I do, I do remember the year at Oshkosh that the, uh, that they came in um, uh, with this, uh, God, uh, what was it? The Air, the Airbus 380 came in and the guy pulled out his little, the pilot pulled out his little creak creak. <laughs> yeah. I want to work on a project that I'm in the airplane that we can shove it out of the back of a 130 or if they, we could talk the military out of, you know, loaning us a C5, that'd be really cool. If anyone's going to do a Kirby, it's going to be you. That'd be fun, huh? Yeah. I, I have a little doubt about that. No question that, that, that that's going to happen. So now tell me a little, you mentioned a little bit earlier about simulators and, and things like that. And you've got uh, a flight engineer, an aerodynamicist. I mean, your team covers the gambit of skills. And uh, tell me about simulating this so that you can give yourself the best chances of winning. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, again, early on, it was seat of the pants flying. And you just kind of figured, okay, I think this is going to be the fastest. Well, as it evolved, you know, we would get guys who were really good with the computer stuff. And, you know, one guy would start out and pretty soon we all had a tactician, but, um, you know, we don't go straight through the gate. I mean, people like, because that would be easy. What you're trying to do is go through there at the optimum angle to whichever direction you need to go. And so I would get, when we first started, my uh, Apollo High School was my uh, tactician. And he would give me a simulation that I could just look at on an iPad or a computer. And but would it help right off the bat because you know, you know, it's a plus 20 or minus 20 or whatever you need in order to do to go through that gate. But at least that's what the computer said is going to be the fastest line. And, uh, you know, when you're only getting 12 or maybe 13 minutes on the track to practice, you know, you don't need to be going out there and going, okay, I need to go from this gate. You know, you need to already know what is more than likely the fast line so that you can start practicing that. And of course, the wind and you know, even even the tide in and out because it's going to change them. It's kind of a, a living, breathing track. You know, imagine it's on a barge, you know, I mean, it's just tied down, right? I mean, they've got anchors and all that, but as the tide goes in, out, wind's blowing it. I mean, imagine telling, you know, the Formula One driver, hey, while you're, you know, in there for the race, we're going to go out and change your, you know, track 20 degrees this way, 20 degrees <laughs> that way. I mean, it happens. And so at that point, then you just got to do whatever you can do in order to get through there. But, um, yeah, it changes. And But with a tactician, he would give us, you know, what was the computer would say the best line, and you'd start off with that. Maybe you'd have to change it. But for the most part, it was, you know, pretty accurate. You ever shred a gate? Oh, yeah. I always, always say if you don't hit gates when you're practicing, you're not trying hard enough, you know. You go, <laughs> how do you go the fastest? You see, you know, okay, you go too fast, and you go, okay, I got to slow back from there, or, you know, I'm not going to quite be able to make that. But, you know, um, I think early on those gates, a full gate was about ten thousand dollars. So as you slice the pieces of it, because they're all together, you go. I think it was about a thousand dollars there. I think one race we took out sixty-three gates. It was pretty ugly. So it was it was really expensive. Gate was ten thousand dollars for a gate, huh? Yeah, it's for the whole thing, you know, basically. So again, there's I think there's five or six sections that would zip in. So you're just taking a little chunk of it, as they say, chunk of money here, chunk of money there. Fortunately, we didn't have to pay for them. Red Bulls. I, did, I didn't realize that they're zipped together. So basically, they expect to shred one and then they put in whatever section it is. Yeah, exactly. And if you'll see your air gators, I mean, they had to do it to work towards the end. I mean, they only have three minutes and they can do it faster than that. And that's to get there, to take that bad section out, zip another section in. It was amazing to watch them and then inflate the gate and get out of there because they've got three minutes. I mean, it's on live on television. So you don't have a lot of time to just go. Whenever you guys get done, we'll start racing again. No, 
it was just like straight up, boom, and they were good at it. It was really amazing, and it's a difficult job, too. They were amazing. I can imagine three minutes to get out there and zip it and repair, take out and put in a new part of the gate and get out of there. Yeah. That's uh, that, that, that's, that's impressive. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, it was a team of probably, you know, they're all positioned all around the track too, because they want to be, you know, you don't know which gate, you know, somebody's going to take out and they would have to literally uh, that team. Usually it's, I think it's, I'm just going to guess, I think, you know, six or seven or eight on each one that's ready to go after that pylon. Or whatever one went down, you know. So uh, they like said, sit out there. They literally got three minutes, and it needs to be done and back up in three minutes. And they also, basically on race boats most of the time. <laughs> yeah, almost jet skis. They got everything, but you know they had a, a pretty quick boat, and they just knew how to do it. I mean, because also we're holding like you know uh, I'm getting ready to run against a guy, and he takes down two gates. Well, I can't sit out there and hold forever either. You know, we don't have a, we're not carrying. We're trying to always carry the minimum fuel we'd have to take off with 50 liters. And they had somebody checking that with the weights and everything else. But 50 liters was at 12 gallons. If you're really hammering on it, you know, my airplane will burn 32 gallons uh, uh, basically an hour. So you start doing the math, you know, it goes away pretty quick. So when somebody would hit a gag, you'd immediately go, you know, then try to, you know, reduce the power as much as you could because you now you know you're going to be sitting there for three minutes before it's your shot at it. Wow. So tell me about how that affects, you know, the racing, because one of the things that's obviously uh, important is that the, your, even the, the small weight difference it might make of having a few gallons different there for your, what your race is going to be. You said you're only carrying 12 gallons. And so you easily, if something comes up that's unexpected and all of a sudden you're three, four gallons off than what you expected, or or maybe less than that. How does that affect your racing? Well, the good thing is, you know, I mean, you know, first of all, when people are like, oh, my God, only 12 gallons, you don't even have. Well, first, all the airplanes that we have really nice is it's a sighting device. And so you can see the fuel. And then you have a header, and you can even see it go down into the header. You know, it goes down in that header. It only holds about three-quarters of a gallon. You better be on the ground pretty quick. But, um, but you can see your fuel. And, of course, you want to run as light as you can. So, you know, if I didn't think the guy's going to knock something down, I'm just, I mean, I'm in the throttle all the whole way. I'm trying to get lighter. You know, you're not allowed to dump fuel, but I can burn it. So, you know, it's going to make a difference. And, you know, when you're going to basically, I mean, I've been knocked out for, you know, 300ths of a second or thousands of a second. I mean, basically, you know, less than a spinner length that you get kicked out for. So you want to be as light as you can. I mean, we would even close our little vents, you know, um, suck those in right as you go into the track and, you know, burn up inside there just to save that little bit of drag, you know, because you always felt like that could make the difference. Uh, so. But, um, yeah, so you try to be as light as you can. But as soon as somebody gets a gate, you know, then you're pulling the throttle back and just trying to hang in low power as you can, you know, because you know now I'm going to have to hold three minutes and I still got to get back, you know. So uh, we always then, again, you can see your fuel. and We were pretty good at managing that, you know, again and again and again. So um, that was never really a big issue. How standardized are the, are the aircraft themselves from one team to another? So engines were pretty much standardized, but, you know, they're supposed to be within, the, I think it was 2% or 3%, let's see, 3%, 2 or 3%. But anyway, it was basically within about six horsepower. So that's what they were, you know, they, they were shooting for. Were they always that way? Maybe, maybe not. And, you know, we, you know, you're always, when you're racing, you're like, that guy's got more than, you know, and so it was always one of those. Uh, the airplanes, um, they were standardized, but you were allowed to, 
you know, change winglets and a bunch of different things you could change on them. And then we were still using two different kinds. I mean, basically, out of the 14 in the master class, which is what I raced in, 13 of them were Edge 540s. Most of them were either what we call version 3 or, or V2 that was modified to basically a version 3. And then we had one MXS, one holdout guy. And, uh, you know, they could modify that however they needed to. But um, for the most part, you know, they're pretty close. And then mostly your team is working on getting it dialed in for exactly what matters for you with, you know, the controls and things like that. Yeah, exactly. You know, and then always trying to, you know, there are certain things that you could do to the motor, uh, you know, and guys, when we wouldn't allow to inject water into the induction system or anything, but, you know, you could cool cylinders with it. And then you're like, you know, we found that it didn't make that much difference. So it just, now you're carrying more weight and, you know, everybody had what they thought was the, you know, the magic, you know, ticket in order to win. And, you know, if uh, somebody was really doing well, or whatever, it was, I'm kind of looking around trying to figure out exactly what they're doing, you know, but uh, normally right. it was just, you know, flying the good too. It makes a difference also. So last question about the race stuff. Uh, I mean, what was your, what was your best memory or your favorite location? Well, everybody always asked me, and I was in St. Petersburg, Russia, and um, it was because we were ahead in the series, and we got over there, and then, I don't know if it was politics or whatever, but the airplanes were not allowed to come in. So I spent a whole week there going through the museums. Every day, they're like, okay, they're bringing the planes in, they're bringing uh, it's not going to happen. And then, so they finally ended up canceling. Everybody's like, well, that was your favorite race. I'm like, yeah, because we were already leaving the series. So it was just another chance to you know, snatched defeat from the jaws of victory already. So, uh, no, but it was a beautiful city. And uh, I, like I said, enjoyed going through the museums and having a blast. But as far as racing, probably Budapest, because, you know, it's such a beautiful city. And I always enjoyed it there. And we always did really well there. Um, you know, so I think probably Budapest. Wow. So let's go back in time a little bit. What What is it that got you from uh, starting in the airline world and 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 making that real switch across to to performing um you know i mean the way that i got started in aerobatics i was 21 a few years ago i was flying a business jet for la quinta motor ends and our chief pilot said hey if the jet ever ends up upside down we want you to be able to turn it right side up without killing everyone and 21 i thought that makes sense to me and we went out and with a you know an aerobatic airplane with an aerobatic instructor turned the airplane upside down i was like wow, this is the coolest thing ever. And it literally changed my life. I mean, because I love flying, but all of a sudden now flying became three-dimensional. And it was, you know, and then it was just like everything other than flying aerobatics was just a big inconvenience for me. You know? <laughs> That's all I wanted to do, you know, everything about it. You know, I didn't want to hear about it. I this is, you know, and so, you know, and that's how you know, I ended up in the U.S. aerobatic team and all the different things and display flying. It's just, I just love it, you know, and I, I mean, I've always loved aviation and it's been so good to me, you know, from a career and enjoying it and doing all the cool things that I've been to do and traveling the world, um, you know, that anytime that I get a chance to turn young people onto it or somebody that's, you know, just starting out, you know, like I said, it's been so good to me and I'm just happy to, you know, have a chance to help promote it and doing what you do, the same thing, you know, it's passion and we love flying. I'm, you know, my, my daughter's flying a little bit now. And uh, I know you said your son, you know, he's uh, getting ready to take his check ride. And, you know, as a parent, you feel like you're so proud of him. But, you know, aviation is a cool thing. 
Yeah, de- definitely. And and as you mentioned, as cool as it is to be in the flight deck of, uh, let's say, a Learjet or something like that, there's it's not necessarily the, the, the room for a lot of creativity there. It's creativity is probably not encouraged in the flight deck. <laughs> definitely not uh, uh, at Southwest where it used to be, probably, or other airlines. Well, 100% people are always like, do you ever roll that 737? I said, I thought about it a couple of times, and I said, and then I think about the 5th and 20th, and I wouldn't do it. And they're like, what's the 5th and 20th? I'm like, payday, because you get a chance to do that one time, and it'll all be over. But, you know, people don't want it to be exciting. It's an airliner, right? Right. Paying over it to be very boring. That's what you want. It's transportation point A to point B. So, you know, for me, I mean, I love the excitement and everything. And, you know, that's you know my transition to aerobatics, I'm sure. You know, that had something to do with it. It's funny because you think back on history of like the debut of the 707 and the jet age. And they and they always talk about that from Boeing with that. Pat, yeah. that when they, when uh, when he rolled that 707 right. in front of everybody uh, uh, and, and it's this dramatic thing. And that was probably the last time anything like that ever happened. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, they say, I mean, this is just what I've heard that initially they fired him, you know, for doing that. And then they got so many orders, they were like, huh, well, you know, I, actually, you're forgiven. Come back. Come on. You know, that's, that's the story. I mean, again, I don't know if that's true, but that's what I've always heard. But, uh, yeah, it was cool. You know, you can roll anything as long as you do it right. Yeah, that's that's definitely impressive, right? Because proper, properly, it's a 1G. 1G yeah. maneuver, and then you're all set. Yeah. So. You know. So what brought you through that step then to the next level of actually starting to compete after you got your, you dipped your toes in the water of aerobatics? Well, I was really lucky because uh, I met this guy, Sam Burgess, and, uh, you know, he talked about competition. And I was like, because I, I, I finally had enough money. I got home to Southwest and I was able to purchase a little pits and, uh, you know, and, I, and, and so started flying. He's like, you know, what you should do is get into competition aerobatics, I see, and they're out there. And, and it's because you have so many people, you know, with a lot of knowledge that are happy to share it with you, you know. And so it keeps you kind of out of trouble as you're learning, too. And so he put me into that. And, uh, you know, so you start. And he also has a reason to practice and the discipline of it all and, you know, trying to make everything perfect. And when you're doing that, you know, you're getting better and better and better. And so I enjoyed competition, too. I said I raced motocross as a kid. I'm a competitive person. And so... You know, the competition aerobatic side, I, I thought that was pretty neat. And, you know, and then once I got into it, it was just like, I'm, I'm an all or nothing type person. I'm like, all in, here we go, you know, and that was my life. And that's all I wanted to do, you know, was uh, fly aerobatics and compete. And, and then that moved me into display flying and, uh, you know, and then into the Rebel Air Race and all that. Now. In, in aerobatic competitions and performing, there's obviously a, a real wide range of how this actually goes, you know, where people tend to specialize, where they find their niche from absolute precision and, and going going for precision above all else to absolute creativity and going for creativity. Uh, and it's not that any of these are exclusive, but everyone finds themselves, it seems, somewhere Somewhere on that spectrum, where do you how, how would you characterize your flying and where you like to be on on that in that world? Um, you know, I mean, people will say your style of flying. I mean, I try not to put too much thought in that, but people would say is explosive, you know, and type that you know super aggressive. And uh, I guess you know, I don't know where that came from, but yeah, I mean, but not only aggressive. I mean, for me, I always wanted to. I, I didn't like you know if I'm, if I'm doing a gyroscope maneuver, we're making the airplane. 
flip end over end over end. I don't want it to just sop in some attitude, you know. I, so it looks like a fish out of water hopping around. Everything that I do, I want it to seem like it's deliberate. He has, you know, so much control over the airplane that it was like the back of his hand. And I like to feel that way, too, because it makes you feel confident. And um, so I would always try to, no matter, tumbling end over end over end, I would always finish on some identical uh, five axis. And normally like a 45 down, horizontal, straight down, something in that airplane. So everything that I do is super deliberate. And um, so I try to be not only aggressive, but very precise. And, you know, a lot of that comes from my competition aerobatics. I mean, I want it to look. Like everything that I did is deliberate, and that's what helps you win too. You've got to impress ten judges, and the way you're going to do it is, you know, that's that airplane's on a rail, you know, and that's that's right. competition aerobatics. And also, when you're trying to do it, it's also it gives you, you know, you're flying for them, but you're really flying for yourself too. And the fact that you know you do a double outside snap and you just like bam, you know, and you look out of your sighting device and you're right on, you know, and you're, you're always looking for that perfect flight. Wow. Wow. So let's talk about airplanes for a minute here. And I'm going to go and open up uh, our uh, back to uh, some of our slides that we had here, because uh, your, your stable's got more than a few airplanes in it. And it all starts with this one, uh, this shot that we've got right up here that uh, has uh, you with the, the M600 and also uh, your Team Chambliss uh, Edge uh, aircraft there. Yeah. So, you know, Jason's flying the M600 there, you know, that photo thing and I'm in the edge and uh, I mean, what an airplane. So, um, you know, we've always had to have a support airplane. What it does is carries not only, you know, our team, but it also carries the parts and supports the air show airplane because the air show airplane can't carry anything. I mean, you got, you know, I mean, enough room for, you know, a couple of shirts and a pair of underwear and that would be about it. And that thing. So we have to carry all the parts because we're at an air show. You break down, you don't want to just say, oh, we can't perform today. We carry all the parts in order to be able to fix it overnight or, you know, within hours in order to be able to perform. And so we've had this support airplane. We had a, a Meridian that I loved for eight years, I guess. And then, uh, yeah, Piper helped us step up to the uh, M600. It looks like a Meridian, but it's really not. It's an amazing airplane. Uh, right. Just, uh, it's got the Garmin G3000 suite in it, you know, and it's all touchscreen. And uh, it's probably, even with all the 737s that I've flown, it's probably the most sophisticated airplane that I've ever flown. You know, it's uh, it pretty much well, and the new ones land themselves. You know, you have a problem, push a button, and it'll actually figure it all out and go land itself and shut the motor down and show you a picture on how to take your seatbelt off and open the door. You know, so uh, it's really sophisticated and it's an absolute joy to fly and it's so capable. So, um, yeah, it's 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 really a nice airplane, and that's what we've been doing the Angel flights in is the M600. and you know, we're just now starting to carry people again uh, because of the virus, but we've been taking stuff up to the different reservations and, you know, wherever they need us to, to move stuff to, we've been doing that and uh, it's been great. Yeah. And, and by the way, for anyone watching, you can just resize your uh, your frame of uh, being able to see more of the picture or more of the video from Kirby on there. Just uh, just a quick note as you do that and we show some of these pictures. And so that's the M600 and the other one. Now, uh, uh, these next two uh, are definitely close to my heart because of the work that you've put into them. And uh, as you know, of course, we've got a video series on, on YouTube. Just search Social Flight, get to see our Titan T-51D Mustang, which is this guy right behind me here going together with the boys, our project. So I love it when people roll up their sleeves and work on planes. And so uh, the next one that we've got here is your, uh, well, why don't you take us through it? Yeah, so that's a three-quarter scale replica 
of the Fiesler Storch, you know, which uh, is what, you know, Hitler sent up to rescue Mussolini. It's, it's a sole airplane. And this is a replica. I've never actually flown the real one. Uh, they tell me that this one performs better. It's got a Rotec 912 US 100 horsepower in it. Uh, it's just a great airplane. The stalling speed is 22 miles an hour. And it's a really uh, rough and rugged and even a crude airplane, which they tell me the, the real ones were also. But it's super maneuverable. And, um, you know, my daughter, when she was growing up, I mean, she's been in from, you know, I mean, probably from the, she was six months old or whatever, or a year or whatever. But she had her favorite tour was a duck, you know, a duck duck. And so she loved ducks. And we could scare the ducks up with the airplane. And it's the only airplane I've ever flown that you can actually stay behind them and make the ducks just crazy. You know, usually you just go flying right on by. So we'd always have blast and I call it a dirt bike with wings. We'd land out in the desert everywhere and we'd go hiking and just have a ball. It's just a, you know, if I'm gonna go out and fly something just for fun, I'm always gonna jump at the storage because it's great. That is so, so cool. And you've done quite a bit of work on that, right? Yeah, you know, we, when we got it, it was <laughs> really crude. And I came from Novosad, Serbia, and needed, uh, you know, a couple things here and there, but, uh, you know, uh, it's like I said, it's just a blast. We we all really enjoy flying. That's awesome. And then the next one that we've got here, a little mm-hmm. more personal. Yeah. So, you know, when you're a teenager, you know everything, right? You know, so uh, I was 13 years old and my dad, um, you know, he uh, he built jigs and stuff. We're living there was a machinist and he came home with this U-Haul trailer full of sheet metal and said, uh, this is an airplane. And I thought, yeah, somebody really took advantage of him. You know, it's a. Uh, <laughs> At least it's like a U-Haul trailer with a bunch of metal. But anyway, a year later, he flew it. But I bucked all the rivets in the fuselage. And then, um, so, and uh, I flew it, I think, you know, right after I got my private, I bought it from him for, you know, next to nothing back then. But anyway, it was, uh, I put it my first 600 hours was in that airplane. I flew it a lot. And then I sold it. And then 20 some odd years later, I found it. And I purchased it back. It had been wrecked a couple of times. So my guys have been working on it to put it back together and you know now it's painted you see the picture on the left side of the screen uh, that's nowadays and we're just getting ready to fly it again on the right side is you know probably 20 25 years ago it's got to be such a time capsule to think about looking at each of those rivets and knowing that you know your younger self did that with your dad working yeah. all those rivets that's pretty that's pretty wild yes yeah, i mean it's, it was really good for me i mean you know, my dad passed away probably 35 years ago, you know, so it was, uh, you know, cool to find it again and, uh, you know, to go out and, you know, take my, my daughter who's never met, obviously she's 15 years old, uh, her granddad, but, uh, you know, to be able to share that experience with her too, it is pretty special. Wow. Absolutely. That is, uh, that, that's really something. So, um, what, tell us what's, what's going on lately now? What's, uh, what's the latest of what's, what's happening in your world? Well, so, you know, right now, I mean, uh, you know, basically unemployed until September, and I'm just kidding, but uh, the, uh, you know, the air show, my first air show, I think will be the Great Pacific Air Show out at Huntington Beach, and that'll be in September, and we get rolling again, you know, that's, uh, if everything goes good, you know, with the, with the, with the virus and all that, that hopefully we'll, that'll be our first show, we just had so many shows canceled, uh, I was real heavy into military shows and seems like when the first one tanked, they just kind of all went away after that. So, you know, we keep myself busy uh, with the family and enjoying a little bit of extra time at home. I think they're like, God, why is he here so much? He's never here. <laughs> get out of here. You know, we're tired of you, you know, but, uh, 
no, that's been that's been a blessing too. So, um, and like I said, in order to you know be able to do some of the angel flights and, and give some stuff back, so uh, it's been great. You know, I mean, uh, you I think you know you can't dwell on all of it. You just got to try to do the best that you can and enjoy your enjoy your life, even though this is yeah. difficult for everyone. You know, and uh, you know it's still you know life goes on, and we try to you know enjoy ourselves as much as we can and. You know, while we're being safe and social distancing, for me, it's uh, been good as far as social distancing because I live out in the middle of nowhere. And unless we're going to get it from a coyote, we're probably not going to get it. You know, so but uh, I live on an airport. You know, out and I'm able to go fly and you know ride motorcycles and you know go out for a walk or a jog or whatever we want to do. And so our social distancing is yeah. pretty. You know, uh, my fiance Heidi likes to call it the gift of COVID. No matter how bad things get, there's always a few things that show up that you wouldn't have had otherwise. Yeah. And, and and in our case, you know, the lockdown here it was like uh, to turn into two boys and saying, uh, "I know exactly what you're going to be doing during this time." <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. There's always some some silver lining somewhere about it. And, well, you look at life that way, right? I mean, we're all here for certain amount of time and, you know, enjoy it as much as you can, you know. Right. Absolutely. Now we have a little special uh, adventure for everybody tonight. Uh, and that is, uh, we were talking and you've got some pretty cool stuff going on with your daughter, Carly, right? Yeah. So, you know, Carly, she can fly an airplane pretty decent these days, but she really flies her body well. So she's, uh, you know, in the, basically it's indoor skydiving and uh, she's really, really good at it. Um, so she's just took second at the U S nationals. Uh, I said just, uh, that was a uh, December of last year, made the U S team. So she's going to have that experience and go to Belgium to compete on a world level. So it's really cool. I'm a, uh, buffoon skydiver. I just do it for fun, but I get in the tunnel with her and, you know, I can, I can basically fly, you know, heads down what you're going to see her doing. And, you know, uh, we'll split 30 minutes and, you know, she'll get 28, I get two minutes, and the two minutes I'm in there, she's jumping in there with me. And the rule is, is that if we run into each other, it was your fault because you're so much better than I am. You know? <laughs> so, uh, but, yeah, it's uh, it's cool. You know, I mean, it's uh, she's so passionate about it. And, you know, I love that about it. You know, you have something in your life that you're passionate about. And so, yeah, I think you'll have a clip, and I hope everybody yeah. will so for everybody online, when we spoke first spoke about this, I had never heard about it. I, I years ago for a birthday present, I went and tried one of these things where I went in and flopped around like a wet noodle and inside one of these things and, and had very little control over over anything. And and in general, I haven't uh, I've been following the philosophy of not jumping yet out of a perfectly good airplane. And so I'm not I have no problem doing it, but I am certainly not someone who knows a lot about the world. Uh, of indoor or outdoor in skydiving. And it all changed when I saw this quick video that Kirby sent me. And so I'd like to share this with you. I'm gonna shut off the webcams for a second so you can see it on full size. And then when we come back, Carly's gonna join us and we'll get to hear because this is, you just gotta see it.
All right. Well, that is just amazing. So let's bring on back. Here we go. <laughs> how Hi. are you guys doing? Good. How are you? Hi, Carly. Welcome to Social Flight Live. Thank you for having me. You are very, very welcome. That is unbelievable. I haven't seen anything like that before. And uh, I can't imagine doing that kind of stuff on the ground, let alone <laughs> while a fan's kicking me all over the place. It would be a little harder on the ground. Uh, so fill me in a little bit on your ba uh, background. Now, you, you gymnast background, a dance background. How did you come about this? Both. I spent eight years doing gymnastics and three competing. And I did two years of ballet. Wow. And, and you are how many years old? I'm 15. So 15 years old, you're going to be competing at a world-class level. And going I overseas. am. <laughs> doing a sport that is obviously pretty, pretty far out there. So what, what brought you over the line? What got you in, into this, competing this way? My dad is a skydiver and has been for a while now. So he took me over to Skyventure for the first time, which is in Arizona, my home tunnel, where I train all the time, pretty much. When I was, I think, four, and I did my first flight, it was, um, I hated it. I really hated it. Yeah. I hated it the first time. And I got back in when I was eight years old. And I loved it. And I really started to engage in the sport when I was probably 12. And I started competing and it was, it was amazing. The community and the sport for most and part. Was the, was the competition something that the, the local version uh, that you went to, the, the place that, that had the, first of all, uh, educate me. What are they, what are they called the location that you go to? It's called Skydive Arizona, but okay. the tunnel is called Skyventure. Okay. And, and so they're, they're, you refer to them as tunnels, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. And so the tunnel that you actually became your home tunnel where you trained at, were they already really familiar with competition use of it? A little, a little. And then I started competing and a lot of their instructors already competed. So they did know a lot about it, but it was really, uh, nobody's competed at a world level in indoor skydiving. Wow. And so you started your competing there and then how did you, how did you progress? How did you get, uh, whether it's a coach or how did you get through the different levels to even get remotely near where you are right now? I've had a lot of coaches from all different kinds of countries. I just had a coach from Russia come out. But the indoor skydiving is a really, really popular in Europe. Mm -hmm. So a lot of coaches from Europe come to coach me just to, to progress. And wow. <laughs> yeah. That's 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 impressive. And do you how much of it is uh, uh, existing moves and techniques that others are teaching you, and how much is uh, creative things that you're doing yourself? I create a lot of my own moves just to have a unique style and try to impress the judges. Mm -hmm. Also, I have a lot of moves from gymnastics that help me, just to a lot of the flexibility things. Yeah. And how are these things judged? There's five rounds. There used to be seven, but there's five now. And there's two rounds that are compulsory. So things that I'm, I'm required to do six moves and two routines. So each routine has three moves. And then I choreograph my other three remaining routines to music. And I listen to music in my helmet. 
and the judges can hear the music and it becomes almost like ice skating. Mm -hmm. So that's synchronized what the, what the people outside see and what you hear, because obviously it's noisy in there and you've got a helmet on. Yes, it is. (laughs) Okay. Very, very impressive. And, and where have you competed outside the United States so far? This will be my first year competing outside the United States. I qualified for the U.S. Nationals in January, and the Worlds were supposed to happen in April, but because of COVID, they were canceled, well, postponed, sorry, postponed uh, October 20th through 25th in Belgium. In Belgium. That is so exciting. That's, uh, that's, that's pretty wild. And I know your dad was telling me about some, there's some, apparently some pretty dramatic tunnels around, uh, around Europe and the Middle East. There is, yes. Beautiful, yeah. Yeah, the one in Abu Dhabi, you know, is uh, literally, it's 32 feet wide, and it Uh goes up 165 feet. So she can go screaming up 165 feet, come screaming down, you know, and just like at the last second, you know. But there's, you know, 150, 160-mile-an-hour wind in there when she's flying that. So it just throws you up. And if you or I were going there, you know, not knowing what you're doing, it's slammed against the wall so fast. It might be. Yeah. Oh, I get yeah. slammed against the wall probably when someone opened the door just to step out. <laughs> yeah. um, that is that is so so cool. Now, have you done uh, or or do you still do any actual out of an airplane diving? Um, I'm not allowed to till I'm 18 for legal, <laughs> but I I am waiting. I am counting down the days and the months. <laughs> keep counting. Keep counting. I think that uh, we're going to keep you in the tunnel there and keep you safe for a while, I guess. <laughs> three more years. Three more. Yeah. Yeah. So that is really impressive, and I really appreciate you giving us this perspective on everything that you're doing. What? Let me tell you, uh, now, do you travel with your dad when he does his side of, uh, of performing? I do travel. I used to a lot, but school got very time consuming. So it was harder for me to travel with my dad all the time. But when I was younger, I went everywhere with him. Wow. What's that? So what's it like being, uh, uh, being the, the daughter of, uh, an, an air show performer at, uh, at the top echelon level? It's really great. Cause when I was little, I got Are really ask him to leave the room for this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. No, no, no. I promise. No, bad. But when I was younger, when I went everywhere, I got a really cool perspective as a young person to see all the different cultures everywhere I went. And it really helped me, like, learn different things. And it was great. It was great. That's fantastic. Well, anything that you can do to help introduce people to aviation and spread the word is, is good all the way around. It's the same thing that, uh, that I teach my guys as well. And, uh, I mean, congratulations to everything, everything that you do, your accomplishments. Hope to see you. I'll be watching uh, you uh, in Belgium compete. Uh, uh, hopefully that will be televised. Uh, and I really appreciate both of you for taking the time to join us tonight. It's really fantastic what you're both doing. Of course. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. You know, and to all the viewers out there, I mean, it's great what you're doing. And, uh, you know, especially during this time, you know, to get some things out there and allow people to still see some flying. And and so it's been um, really, really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Oh, you are so welcome. Hope we have you back soon. Kirby and Carly Chambliss and a shout out to Kelly as well, because we know that she runs everything behind the show uh, and behind the scenes for both of you. 
And so thank you both so much for joining us here on Social Flight Live. And again, to everyone who's watching, be sure to do this. You'll, we'll have a recording out there on Social Flight's YouTube channel. And more than anything, sign in. Get uh, socialflight.com and Social Flight mobile apps. It's the best way for our community to stay together. Everything is completely free. We try to give away things as met as often as we can from our sponsors and anything else that we can do to support general aviation. We want to hear from you in what we can do to help until next time. I'm Jeff Simon for social flight blue skies.